As you um, turn in your Bibles to the 34th chapter of Genesis, where we'll uh, pick up where we left off at the first verse of Genesis 34, I will uh, say to you that this is one of those passages that um, we might otherwise skip over if it were not for our commitment to the preaching of Scripture and that we In fact, some expositors of the text, consecutive expositors of the A.W. Pink skipped it in his series of studies, just went right from Genesis 33 to 35, with nothing but this note, quote, we pass over the sad record of asking our readers to turn to it for themselves. That's how distasteful this chapter is. Not only to think, but to others who have found it too much to read to their congregations. One pastor I know thought about warning his congregation before preaching on this text that what he was about to read should be rated PG-13. And indeed, it is one of the darkest episodes in biblical history. One commentator calls it unvarnished picture of raw passion and perfidy or treachery. But it is also God's word. It is also inspired by the Holy Spirit and profitable for us, we know, because God himself placed it here. And that, by the way, is another uh, proof, if you will, or evidence that this is indeed God's word and not merely man's word. We're you or I writing this history about the patriarchs, about our fathers in the faith, we would have left things like this out altogether. But God does not leave this out. In fact, he shows us the failings of our mothers and fathers in the faith too. Because I am convinced he has important lessons for us to learn here, and perhaps even more that his glory and his grace may shine all the brighter. So to God's word, but first to prayer. Our Father in heaven, we were called to worship this morning from your word, teaching us that Jacob is your possession, that you have called out and chosen Israel to be your own. We understand this, our Father, to apply to us, but also, and first of all, to the very one whose name was Jacob, and then changed to Israel. You chose him, you preserved and kept him, and that, Father, is a great hope to us as we go and read this passage, this dark passage from his life and from the life of his family. A great assurance to us, our Father, that sinful though we be, you will keep us as well. But we pray at the same time, our Father, teach us the lessons of our fathers, that we may learn them well, Avoid the sadnesses and griefs that have come upon your people. Enjoy the blessings that you have for us as we apply your word by your Spirit's work for whom we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 34, we begin at the first verse. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. 
Now, from this very opening verse, there are two things that strike us. First, Dinah is called the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob. Already, Moses is setting us up for the dynamics of the passage that, uh, that, are, about to, uh, that are working in what we're about to read. You all remember that Leah was Jacob's unfavorite wife, and that Rachel, of course, was his favorite. And so his lack of affection for Leah now shows in his approach and his treatment of Leah's daughter. He is indifferent, as you'll see, toward Dinah, indifferent about her behavior, indifferent about her preparation for a proper marriage, indifferent about her needs. And so now she is going out, by which we understand that she is looking for companionship, even ignorantly. And from the language, we deduce that she is also looking for love, as the country song has it in all the wrong places. Verse 2, And when Shechem the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Shechem, by the way, is an interesting study in human nature and the mixture of motives and thoughts. What he did to Dinah here is inexcusable and a terrible crime that he has committed against her. But what distinguishes him here from, say, David's son Amnon, who raped Tamar, but then hated her, is the fact that Shechem is genuinely interested in Dinah and wants to marry her and speaks tenderly to her. So for a minute, we don't think maybe as harshly of Shechem until like a spoiled brat who always gets his way, he turns to his father with his harsh demand in verse 4. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Imagine this, fathers. Perish the thought that you should ever receive news like Jacob did this day. But if you ever did, could you imagine sitting around and doing nothing? If we could deduce Jacob's indifference to Dinah from verse 1, here it is clearly to be seen. And Jacob's indifference toward their sister will only add to the flames of her brother's wrath. Jacob's indifference toward Leah's daughter will continue now in the passage, especially now as negotiations begin over the fate of Dinah. And Jacob falls completely into the background. Verse 6, And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. 
But Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Now the stakes have become clear. And from the very lips of the pagan Hamor, what is being offered here is yet another opportunity for the covenant people of God to disappear from the face of the earth by intermingling with and being absorbed by the pagans. Once again, the world holds before the eyes of God's people the dazzle of riches, the promise of wives, of brides, if only they will give up their distinctive place in the world. Now, the sons of Jacob probably understood that, but probably only in a shallow way, as demonstrated by their deceitful response, wrapped up now in a shallow layer of religiosity. Verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are, by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Now, if you were listening carefully there, just now you heard a clue about these negotiations, about the nature of them. They've sounded polite enough on the surface thus far, but what we've just found out in that verse for the first time is that Jacob and his sons do not have Dinah with them. She's still back at Shechem's place. And it might not be too much for us to say that she's being held at Shechem's. Verse 18, their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So, so Haman and... Uh, I'm sorry, so Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as our wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree with us to become one people and every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will they not, will not their livestock, their property and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. 
uh, Hamor and Shechem have quite a sales job on their hands uh, today. They must convince all of the men to be circumcised, to undergo what was in their day a crude pro procedure and painful, and even temporarily debilitating. So, of course, they put the matters in terms of the interest of the community. I say nothing about the matter of Shechem and, and Dinah. Instead, they assure the men that they will benefit. They will gain in livestock and property and daughters from Jacob to have for themselves. In other words, what we have here are consummate politicians. Verse 24. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, by which Moses is careful here to point out Dinah's immediate brothers, full brothers, sons of Leah, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you've brought trouble on me. There's Jacob thinking of his own skin again. You've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? You see them at the mall. Good grief, you see them at the grocery store nowadays, girls, women in their skin-tight hipster jeans, or short shorts, they're stretched and painted on blouses with midriffs peeking through, making their way up and down the walkways, the aisles, the corridors, like walking invitations, intentional or not, to every boy who comes the other way. And then every once in a while, you see a group of those girls climbing together into a van on the side of which is emblazoned the words, such and such church of Owensboro. Now, some of you are saying, here he goes, another stereotypically prudish sermon about women's clothing. And you think that the title of the sermon only confirms the point, flirting with the world. You're getting ready for me to pick on Dinah and say that it was really her fault that she found herself in the clutches of the prince. Well, ladies, girls, I, I will say this. Christian women of any age find particularly uh, trying things in their particular day and age. 
And I will say this, since the subject has come up, if you are finding it easy to find clothing for yourself and for your daughters at the stores these days, then you and your daughters are probably not wearing proper clothing. That's just the brutal fact of life for Christian women today who would also be modest women. But oh, I'm not here today to accuse Dinah of flirting with the world, though that does not require much of a stretch of the imagination. In fact, the text itself tends to suggest that she probably was. She was out seeking the company of ungodly women, and behind such company, the company of ungodly men, is never very far. In fact, it was precisely in that company that she was noticed by the prince of Shechem and may not have even minded his attentions so badly until, of course, it went too far. But it's not women's clothing, nor is it Dinah who is in view this morning. It is the one who bears responsibility for Dinah, who stands out in this chapter precisely because he stands so far outside of the events of this chapter. It is the one who bears responsibility for those girls at the mall. It is a father. And in fact, in this case, in Jacob's case, it is a father who is flirting with the world. Let me explain. Jacob had been set on a clear path, a pilgrimage. That pilgrimage had a clear destination. It was Bethel. And he was well on his way to that destination. Bethel was but another day or two journeys beyond where he was. But instead of completing his pilgrimage, instead of continuing to the place where God said he should go, he pauses at Shechem. Shechem's a sort of compromise, you see, in his pilgrimage. It isn't Canaan, that's true. It's not quite Bethel. But you can almost hear Jacob reason, Shechem is a crossroads of trade, and, and I can gain financially here. And I can put food on the table and feed my children here in Shechem, not to mention putting back a few bucks for a rainy day. So what if it's not exactly Bethel? But alas, he more than pauses. He buys property, and he settles there probably for several years, for the years of Dinah's growing up through adolescence. Jacob, no doubt, convinced himself that this, is, this little pause in pilgrimage couldn't hurt. But as Derek Kidner puts it in his commentary, by halting his own pilgrimage, Jacob endangers others who were more vulnerable than himself. And the price he's going to pay and that his family is going to pay is very, very high. The rape of his daughter, the anger and impulsive behavior of his sons, their deceit after the like of his own only intensified. All of it comes as a result of his having stopped his own pilgrimage. Now note this well, Jacob has not given up his religion. 
He's still very religious. He's, he's erected an altar there in Shechem. We, we read that last week at the end of chapter 3. He even called it El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. But all of the outward religion, all of the religious talk that a man can muster cannot and will not make up for a man's having come to a place in his pilgrimage where he no longer follows the Lord as far as the Lord calls him to go in complete and unrelenting obedience to him. When a man, when a father in particular, compromises in his walk with the Lord, the results are devastating, not only for himself, but for his family. Behind every daughter, behind the outcome of every son's life, there's one man. Biologically and morally speaking, there is one man who must bear primary responsible responsibility for that child. Fathers, it is a solemn word to you. Of course, Jacob didn't intend to slip in his pilgrimage. He had no intention of exposing his children to the terrible temptations they faced while he dilly-dallied on pilgrimage, enjoying worldliness for a little while. But that is exactly what did happen and forever was scarred the life of his daughter and his sons he even, even threatened to interrupt the flow of the covenant from one generation to the next. You and I, fathers, are tempted to do the very same thing, to pause in our pilgrimage, to, to sort of take a break from the moral, mortal battle with sin, to pause in our paths. Of obedience to indulge just this fancy or that just for a little while just a, a little taste of the world and of its pleasures then I'll get back to living the Christian life or I'll be more consistent in the rest of the Christian life but dear fathers it is in those pauses it is in that single pause that we undo much more than ever we thought, both in our own lives and in our children's lives. God's commandments, the Christian life, pilgrimage is not something to take up and put down now and then when we want a little break. That is the warning of Jacob's life to you, to all of you, to all of us, and particularly to you fathers and to me. And even more specifically, fathers, Jacob is for you a lesson in the constant, constant vigilance that you must exercise when it comes to protecting your family from the spiritual danger and harm and from absorption into the world. We hear all the time that the children of the church are growing up and wandering away. And those who have been reared in Christian circles are being lost to the world. Why is that? And how shall we turn that tide? 
The answer, quite frankly, lies primarily, fathers, men, with you. It lies with fathers who will guard their children like a precious pearl from all that would sully its glow, from all that would snatch it from its setting and defile it. And the situation in America today is hauntingly similar to that of ancient Shechem. Like the Shechemites, Americans are syncretistic. That is, they're happy to absorb another family and even a, family, uh, a family's God, so long as they too are willing to be absorbed. Especially if they're a wealthy family, such as Jacob's was, they're more than happy to intermarry with the children of today's church in which pilgrimage, alas, is so widely taken so lightly. A little bit of religion, a little bit of the worldly philosophy, a little bit of Christ, a little bit of humanism, why not? Mix it all together, the more the better. Remember how Abraham was so careful to see that Isaac marry only in the Lord? And then Isaac even took steps to see that Jacob do the same to protect the purity and the distinctiveness of the covenant community. Well, Jacob here, by settling his family in Shechem, by raising his children here, dipping them into the pagan culture day after day after day, hour after hour after hour, virtually assured that the result would be just the opposite. They would take their convictions lightly, as Jacob's sons did, as they did with circumcision. They take the holy things of God, the, the covenant, the sacraments, like those boys did, and play unholy games with them. What was this? Re requiring the Shechemites to be circumcised with all of the religious language that it was wrapped up in. It was nothing but a low-down, dirty, scheming way of debilitating them so that they could cut them down in their weakness. Now, there was some nobility in the boys' hearts, to be sure. At least they were concerned for their sister. They wanted to rescue her, but this way... This way, by, by treating the covenant, by treating the sacrament of circumcision like this? We'd almost think it, it better, of course it wouldn't have been, for them to, as we say, contemn the ordinances, to neglect circumcision altogether, the way more and more the sacraments have fallen into disuse in the modern evangelical church. But our modern-day treatment of the sacraments is no better than their abuses of them. Ask most evangelicals today, and, and even many, if not most, Presbyterians, of what importance baptism and the Lord's Supper must be in the Christian life. And you will likely get a blank stare. The duty of intergenerational covenant baptism or of regularly and often coming to the Lord's Supper is no longer pressing upon even Reformed folk who now so easily slide into churches where these things are completely missing. 
Yes, the responsibility for these particular patterns falls largely to the church and to her leadership, to be sure. But dear fellow fathers, let me ask you, when was the last time you spoke to your children of the holiness, of the importance of their baptism, or of their participation at the Lord's table? Or how have you modeled these things by your own life for them? You've spoken to them about many things. Your children chit-chat at the table and at bedtime, go to bed, go do your homeworks, and so on. Now speak to them, fathers, about the Word of God. Speak to them about the sacraments. Teach them and then model for them how they must always, always be distinct from the world, separate from the unholy. Talk about the company they must keep, how bad company corrupts good character, about fleeing, not toying with lust and with temptation, about what they see, what they allow into the, as Bunyan calls it, the eye gate and the ear gate, about obeying God's law and keeping his commandments scrupulously, even when it costs, even when it hurts. Give them thoughts in their youth about the kind of person they must marry and the kind of person they must not. Terrible and heartbreaking things come when these things are not emphasized and taught and understood and explained in the Christian home, when the distinction is blurred between your home and the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Therefore come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Fathers, mothers, all of you, brothers and sisters in the Lord, do not stop in your pilgrimage. Don't pause in your pilgrimage. Keep moving, keep guarding, keep fighting, keep striving, keep advancing. You and for those of you with families, your family too. Make every day another day in which by your words, by your holy conversation with your children, by your prayer, by the unending battle with sin on every front, by your pursuit of purity as a people set apart to the Lord and belonging to Him, you say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen.